Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Do you have money sitting in the stock market and you're worried about it? Or worse, you have money sitting at the bank, not keeping up with inflation? My name is Charles Carrillo, founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners. And since 2006, I've been investing my money and my family's money into income-producing properties. These are real assets, real properties with real addresses that produce real cash flow. At Harborside Partners, we provide passive investors who love real estate with a turnkey investing solution. If you want to put your money to work in real estate but can't find deals, don't have the time to get funding, and the last thing that productive people want to do is manage real estate. We find the deals, we fund the deals, and we manage the tenants, the termites, and the properties. Partner with us at investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Go to investwithharborside.com. If you love real estate, you like the idea of passive income, and believe that income-producing properties will appreciate over time, go to investwithharborside.com. That's investwithharborside.com. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have John Kasman. John has partnered with busy professionals to invest in over $100 million worth of apartments. He consults active multifamily investors and hosts the Target Market Multifamily Insights Podcast. And prior to becoming a full-time investor, John worked in corporate America, overseeing marketing campaigns for General Motors, Nike, and Coors Light. So thanks so much for being on the show, John. Hey, Charles, thank you for having me today. I'm excited to be here and uh, talk to your audience. Yeah, great. I want to dig into kind of your transition into full-time investor because that's, I think, what everybody's goal really is that's uh, listening. Um, so tell us about your background, both personally and professionally, prior to getting involved in uh, real estate investing. Yeah, absolutely. So I started off in marketing and advertising. I spent 15 years in corporate America leading campaigns for major brands like Nike, Coors Light, Mountain Dew, and General Motors. And in short, for me, um, you know, I enjoyed what I did, loved what my job loves, you know, developing strategies and campaigns. Uh, and the time I was at GM early in my career, I was 2007 to 2011. And if you recall, that was a time where we had, you know, the financial crisis. But the first signs of that were actually in the automotive industry, right? So I was a part of the big three that, you know, had those financial issues. And um, we were pretty much getting ready to go through a structured bankruptcy. So I walked through all of that and watched my senior leadership on, you know, the, the big financial news channels every day. And um, just the stress, the anxiety that, you know, I felt, my colleagues felt, uh, it made me feel powerless. And I was still early in my career, so I didn't have a whole lot to worry about, but it made me really think about the pathway a lot. And I ultimately decided I needed to invest uh, my money, uh, the little money I did have, I needed to find a way to invest it. So I wasn't solely relying on this W-2 job. And that really led me to real estate. Uh, took a few years to, to get going. I moved to Chicago in 2011, got married to my wife, and she and I bought our first property together. We bought a duplex, lived in one unit, rented out the other, and continued to invest in multifamily. And ultimately, we ran into a challenge where you know, we would buy properties and self-manage but we kept running out of our own money, right? Because we could only buy a property when we saved up enough money to buy a property. So that really led us to this world of partnerships, working with other people, and ultimately into apartment syndication. Yeah. Interesting. So tell me about you house hacked your way into your first property, just like I did. Uh, so 
explain what you did there in what year this was and you were in Chicago as a duplex and kind of how that whole, uh, you know, how that turned out for you. And if yeah, you're still 10 years today. ago, 10 years ago, we, we started that 2012. Um, we bought a two unit, lived on the top floor. We did some renovations to the unit we lived in, uh, renovated the exterior of the property. And if you recall that time, right, 2011, 2012, that was when we were starting to emerge from that financial crisis. So the banks were opening up, you know, property values were slowly starting to turn around and people were starting to, you know, get back into real estate. But up to that point, you know, it was kind of, you know, either still going down or just starting to tailor off. But in 2012 is when the uptick really started to, to happen. So we got in at the right time, right? And we were looking, I was, you know, actively looking for properties, studying the market, torn properties. And I distinctly remember having a list. I had a list of 10 properties and my wife and I would go, we tour these properties. We kind of go through our list. We talk about what we liked about the properties and we were taking our sweet time. I mean, this was like December, January, and we just kept, kept looking. And in February, it's like the second week in February, after one weekend, that Monday, that top 10 list became a top seven list. Three of those properties went under contract. We're like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, we need to, okay, go add three <laughs> more to the list. Well, we added three more to the list. And that next Monday, that top 10 list became a top six list. Two of the new ones were off and two of the other ones were off. So then we're like, okay, the market's starting to heat up. We got to be more proactive. And I remember there was a property we loved in a neighborhood in Chicago called Wicker Park. And we loved it. Um, it came out like late Thursday evening. I called the broker right away, said, hey, I want to tour this. We set up an appointment for Saturday. Um, I tried to get the first appointment Saturday morning. We got a the second appointment, basically. And we got there and somebody, when we got there, somebody was walking out of the property with papers in her hand. Uh. And I'm like, I hope those papers aren't a contract. And it was. And at that moment, it was like, okay, we got to move and get more, you know, uh, more aggressive here on the property. So I actually went through that top 10 list went through all those properties that were still there, found one we liked, um, discussed, you know, what was the issue before, toured it again, put in the offer, got that under contract. We sold that um, shortly after we moved to Cincinnati. So we owned that for eight years and then sold that uh, about a year and a half ago and uh, did extremely well with that property. So very excited for that. And I tell everyone, if you're looking for an easy way to get started in multifamily, um, a two to four unit that you can live in, residential financing, in the United States, you can use uh, FHA financing. Um, that really allows you to only bring three and a half percent of the down payment. Um, or if you are a veteran, if you served in the military, you can get a VA loan where it's even less than that. You might even be able to do zero percent. So yeah. there's some phenomenal financing available if you're willing to house hack, as they call it, but living in one unit and renting out the others. Yeah. It's also much easier to manage. If you're like, well, I'm, I'm scared about managing it. Well, it's much easier to manage it when you go downstairs or next door to take care of a problem. You know what I mean? And um, if I was working at home at the time when I house hacked and it was like, all right, well, I just open up the door for the contractor handyman. They go in here and do that and stuff like that, which I think a lot more people now are doing that than, than 10 years ago. But um, that's awesome. So tell us about how your business has, how your business has like, grown and what your current investment strategy and criteria is and like how, what you're kind of focusing on now in your business. Yeah. So that first property is almost cheating, right? Because like you said, <laughs> I lived in a property. I mean, I was renting before that. So, I mean, I'm paying, you know, my rent and the numbers weren't quite as critical. Obviously we wanted to make money, but it wasn't like 
it was a pure investment where if I didn't get a certain return, I was going to be disappointed. I had, a, I had a list somewhere anyway, right? So that was the first deal. The next deal to me was really the first real investment because I wasn't living at that property and I needed the rental income to cover all the bills, call, cover the debt service and be worth my time as far as the, the residual income I was going to make off of it, right? Mm -hmm. So we bought that three-unit property. That did really well for us. And then we started to expand into commercial. At this point, I believed in the power of real estate. We were able to refinance that first property and pull out a large line of credit. We used that to buy an eight-unit building. And we started to flip some projects as well. And ultimately, what became crystal clear was we proven out the concept, hmm. you know, all the things we had read, you know, have been verified based on our own experiences and we were ready to really grow. And the big thing for me was understanding why I was doing this. If I could rewind that clock back, I started this conversation talking about my time in Detroit working in the automotive industry. Well, that anxiety of losing your job and not knowing how you're going to pay the bills, that always kind of stuck with me. And when I switched from the automotive space into the advertising space on the, on the agency side, it was a similar kind of thing because if I lost a client or a big book of business, there was going to be a round of layoffs. And I had a, I led uh, some pretty major accounts for an advertising agency. And we ended up being in a situation where, you know, had nothing to do with anything we were doing, but the senior leadership, the parent company, they ended up going bankrupt and folding. And once again, I was at a company that was going through a bankruptcy. And at that moment, I realized, dude, you have been building real, this real estate portfolio. You started to kind of create some passive income. You're building up equity, but it's still not enough for you to live off of if you don't have this W-2 job. You've got to find a different way. And that's really what, what forced me to open up to partnering with other people. And those partnerships allowed me to then go out and look for real estate where it wasn't tied to how much money I had in my bank account. And I think that's really important for any investor because we all have some sort of limitation. You know, if you are overseas, maybe you can't, you know, tour the properties or manage them yourself or get out there, especially in a competitive environment. Maybe you have some capital, but you don't have the experience to invest and banks really want you to have experience or banks want you to be a U.S. citizen, right? Um, or maybe you have the opposite. You have the experience and the knowledge, but you don't have the capital you need to go out there and find these deals. So I think part of what you have to do is be willing to work with other people to find the partnerships where you bring what you bring to the table and you can align yourself with someone who can supplement that. And together you can go out and kind of build a portfolio that addresses the needs and concerns that you have. That's awesome. Yeah. The thing is about proof of concept. That's so important. And uh, it sounds like you're in a second property. My second property as well. I got that. And I was like, cause the first one was kind of like a mess. And the second one was like, all right, now this is actually working. I'm actually making money. I did this correctly compared to the first one. And um, so you just kind of, uh, you learn from your mistakes and then you kind of, uh, you grow from there. So that's awesome. But you yeah, brought partnerships. Charles, I, yeah, go on. Sorry. I was just gonna say the, the thing that's interesting is like, I was the opposite because the first few deals I did were perfect almost, you know, I mean, they were exactly how you draw, draw them up, right? I mean, the first deal couldn't have gone any better. <laughs> the second deal was exactly what I expected. So what actually happened for me was, I was, I'm self-aware enough to know that I wasn't flawless. And I just, I, I didn't feel like I was actually learning, if that makes sense, right? You kind of do need to fail a little bit so you can truly yeah. step back, revise your systems, processes, and align. And there were things I was doing well, but I didn't know what they were or why they, it was working. 
And I really needed that next deal, that third deal, which didn't go as according to plan. So I could finally say, ah, okay, here's where this, we messed up here. Here's why it didn't happen on those first two deals, or here's what we need to adjust going forward. So to your point, you can't be afraid to make a mistake. It's a part of the learning curve. What you do want to do is, is make sure you mitigate the risk or the exposure you have if you are to make a mistake, so it's not your life saving. So I think it's really important to uh, go out there, take some calculated risks, some structured risk, and continue to refine your strategies and processes. How do you mitigate those risks, John? How would you suggest that to someone? You really want to understand um, what those things are. You know, the very first question I would ask when any deal or even a potential partnership is, how could I lose money or what can go wrong here? Mm-hmm. You know, what is my expectation? What's my business plan? What's my outcome that I'm projecting? And what would cause this plan to derail? You know, what would need to happen for me to have to spend more money renovating this property or to lose money or to not be able to rent at the uh, the dollar amount that I expect? And when you start thinking through and troubleshooting what could go wrong, now you can start to ask yourself, okay, well, how do I get in front of that? Um, if the renovation budget is higher than you anticipated, okay, well, maybe we should have some money in reserves. Maybe I should inflate my renovation budget by 15% or 20%. So I have extra money set aside when that contractor comes back and says, actually, it's going to be more than what I thought. You're prepared for that. So if you can start to sit down and ask yourself, what could go wrong? What happens if I don't get a good contractor? How do I get a good contractor? How do I keep that contractor, you know, um, incentivized to stay on the schedule, to stay on the budget? All those kind of things start to come up when you really think about the project and how you manage it and mitigate that risk. If you just hope it goes well, hope is an awful strategy. You know, it just doesn't work. So you really do need to take the time to think through and troubleshoot those issues. Talk to other people, listen to podcasts like this, read books, understand what are those things that can go wrong, and then put together a plan so you can mitigate that risk. Nice, nice. Uh, one thing I wanted to know, like, how old were these properties? Like, when do you think they were built? The your first uh, handful of investments there in the Midwest. Well, I was in Chicago for eight years when I started investing, so all of my properties were in Chicago, and Chicago has a very old housing stock. Yeah. So, I mean, the first property we bought was built in the. I mean, probably the early 1900s. I mean, maybe 1920 or something like that. Yeah. Um, all the properties, I think, were much older brick homes, uh, brick, brick apartment buildings. Um, the second property we bought was just recently renovated. And at that time, my wife was pregnant with our first child. We didn't want to go into a heavy renovation project. So I was actually looking for something that was renovated, but still had some upside potential. And we were looking for something where the rents were not in line with the market and we could push rents. And I mean, honestly, we got a little lucky because the agent we were working with found a property uh, and she didn't find out. Honestly, it was her other client. Her other client was getting ready to list this property. And she said, John, um, I've got another client who's getting ready to list this property. I think it's exactly what you're looking for. I can be the dual agent, but I actually want to step out of the process and let y'all just talk. And she introduced me to him. We had a conversation. It was on a Sunday night. I looked at the property, looked at the numbers. It was exactly what we were looking for. And we had toured dozens of properties up to that point. And it was um, what stood out to me was the unit sizes were bigger than the other units um, that I've seen in that neighborhood. And when you really understand your market, the market, local market knowledge is key. So in Chicago, as you, as many people may imagine, similar to New York and other big metropolitan cities that are um, highly um, 
highly dense, you know, high density. Well, you don't have a lot of space. The, the standard Chicago lot is 25 feet wide by 125 feet long. Um, so 25 feet wide, you're not going to have these huge apartment units at 25 feet wide for the entire building or for the lot. That's not even the building. That's the lot. So this property was actually an oversized lot and the building was a little bit wider. So the lot, I want to say the building was about 30 feet wide. So the units were much bigger than the typical apartment building. Um, but the units were renting for less than what I was finding in the market. And these are recently renovated. So I knew we could push rents by like 100, 150 bucks. The uh, clauses were big. So I found that opportunity. And that's the key when you're investing is you've got to find something that maybe other people don't see. And because this wasn't listed yet, I knew I had to move fast. Otherwise, if this got to the open market, somebody would probably beat me with a higher offer. Uh, and again, because I was in with the agent, she was able to reduce her commission a little bit since this was going to be an easy transaction for her. She was going to get both sides of it and it made it work. It made it an easy deal. That's awesome. Uh, one thing I want to point out that I love is that um, you knew the unit sizes and you knew the market so well. And that's something that I think a lot of people make the mistake on not knowing. And when I started buying in Connecticut years back, um, I would know this size two bedroom or this size three bedroom, this three bedroom, I will keep tenants in here for five plus years. It'll be very rare if I have someone that's not in here for five years. And um, I have some tenants that are in there for 10 plus years. And it's like, okay, that's minimal turnover. They're taking their minimal, you know, the rent increases every year, stuff like this. But um, that's where you start making money with limited turnover. But you knew that going in, you knew it would be easy to rent. You knew that you're going to keep tenants in there most likely longer, I would imagine, if it was such a prized property. And that's where you start making money. So it's, it's really important to know everything about the market. And you knew when to pull the trigger on something, you knew exactly when to do it going forward after you really, really learned and understood uh, the market that you were working in. So that's that's fantastic. That's great. Yeah. And it goes back to what we said about mitigating risk, right? I mean, it's like you can guess all day long, but if you have the, the market knowledge and whether that is, you know, uh, data points you can pull out or you're out there touring properties all the time, you're looking at apartment listings, you're reading what's available, you're looking at the square footage, you, you really understand what the market is doing and you can find that opportunity when you're actively involved in the market now the flip side of that is it's really hard to scale when you're constantly scouring for you know a one unit or a two unit property and you're that into the weeds of the details it's great starting out because you need that base right you need that base to be able to feel confident in the decisions you're making but we invest in you know basically six figure properties now 100 plus units is what we're looking at I want to understand the area. I want to understand the market data, but I'm doing it more at a macro level as opposed to literally walking into, you know, uh, apartment 37F and looking at that and saying, okay, well, because this one faces that side of the street or this side of the parking lot, it should rent for $2 more than that. Like at, at a certain point, yeah. you can't really grow the business if you're not looking at the overall business and the overall market. But starting out, if you've got you know one unit or two unit, you've got to protect that investment. I think being super deep in the knowledge is there. But when you scale up to a larger property, now you're managing that larger property, not necessarily that individual unit. You're looking at that property saying, how can we keep rents at this level? How do we reduce our turnover? How do we make this an inviting place to live so that we can run the business we're trying to run? And very similar to, again, any kind of business, right? Um, you know, if you're running uh, any kind of business, you're going to take a look at 
the sales, you're going to look at the income, you're going to look at where are you doing the best business, which products or which services are, are most attractive, what's your competitive advantage in the marketplace, and how do you grow those things? Now, if you've got one unit, that's going to be a pretty finite discussion and conversation. But when you've got a 200 unit property, you, you have to look at the entire 200 unit property, not just each individual unit. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's great advice. Yeah, the rent comps are the one of the first things I always will look at when looking at a property because I talk to people and they're like, well, how do I know? Like, don't waste your time underwriting. See if there's, you know, you can get movement in these rents 20, 25% higher. Make sure it's apples to apples. They're nearby. They're not like two miles away. I get people send me uh, rent comps two and a half miles away, which rather be in a different country. I mean, it just doesn't matter. It has to be something. Real estate is so local. And so street by street, neighborhood by neighborhood and Google maps is good, but you look at something on Google maps, like, wow, it's such a difference. This, uh, right between these two things. Yeah. Cause there's a train track and a highway and, uh, uh you know, a river. I mean, this, it can completely changes what you're working on. But, um, so John, you talked about earlier about, um, utilizing partnerships to scale. So how have you done that and how has it allowed you to become a full-time investor? Absolutely. I mean, I think partnerships are absolutely key. You know, again, we go back to what we were just talking about. Well, that was me doing a lot of the work and I trusted me. I trusted my work. I trusted my research and trust the work, but that's extremely limiting in how much we can grow and scale and how much money we can actually make. But by using partnerships, that opens up the doors because now I can leverage someone else's knowledge and expertise and their time and their resources. And that allows us to grow and scale. So the very first deal we did as partners was a 192 unit complex where we partnered with a group in Texas. So they were local, they knew the market, they had a lot of experience and we were able to come in and partner with them. Not something that I would have ever had the ability to do by myself um, or even as a lead at that stage, because I just wouldn't have trusted what we could do on a building that large. But they had done some deals like that. And, you know, it made it easy for us to come in, partner with them, learn, grow, scale and be in a position to continue to do larger type of deals. So from a partnership standpoint, you know, one of the things for us is always understanding who you're working with building relationships, getting to know them, what's their experience? How do they operate? How do they think? Do they understand their market? Um, are they prioritizing investors and the people that they're in business with? What's their character? Um, how do they communicate? You know, are they going to be easily, easily reachable or are they going to disappear the moment something bad happens? You want to make sure you really understand the types of people you're working with and whether or not it's going to be suitable for a great partnership. So have you had any partnerships fail? And if so, what happened with those? Yeah, absolutely. We've definitely had partnerships that have failed. Um, most of those partnerships, you know, we, we've talked about the, you know, the, the lessons learned. Well, part of it is, you know, stepping back and just trusting someone based on their experience. Experience is really important, but experience doesn't make a great partnership. If that's the case, you'd have, you know, you just get the best players on a team in any sport, put them together and boom, you got a championship. Well, doesn't work that way. Personalities are important. Um, how you handle conflict is important. Um, understanding roles and responsibilities. You know, if you get five people that do the same five things really well, but no one can do other aspects, well, that's not going to work, right? So it's got to be a team. You have to have team a team with complementary skills, and that really helps. You know, we we did a, a flip project. And um, at the time, I had no real desire to be a flipper. I was only focused on multifamily, but I needed to make more money, right? So I decided to partner with this guy who was a developer. I would be kind of the money. He would, you know, flip the project. And that was going to be the partnership. We're going to split the proceeds 50-50. Well, 
early on, there were red flags that I ignored. And one of the big red flags, and I tell everyone this, is you always want to make sure that anyone you're looking to partner with, that they understand and address any concerns you have or questions you have with a level of empathy and respect. If they are dismissive to a concern you have, run away. Because if you tell me, don't worry about that, I'm absolutely going to worry about it. Because you should, you should be able to explain to me why that issue, whatever it is, it could be anything simple, like, oh, you know, what happens, what happens if the roof collapses? Don't tell me, don't worry about that. Tell me, hey, John, you know, one, we don't anticipate that happening based on the construction. We had a roof inspection, you know, our roof went up there, everything looks good. Two, we have insurance that is set aside to take care of that. You should be able to break it down and explain to me why that concern is not as important to you, right? Or how you're already addressing that concern. But when you tell me, don't worry about it, that tells me that you don't even want to talk about it and you're very dismissive. And there might be other things that are more relevant that you're not going to be as willing to discuss with me, right? So I would say, just make sure that one, they respect you. Two, talk about how decisions are made. You know, be clear on how much input do you have? Do you have the ability to make decisions to impact something? Is it a 50-50 thing? Well, if it is, what happens if you disagree? How will, how will the decision be made at that point? Are you flipping a coin or what are you doing, right? So you have to get into the weeds a little bit on some of these things if you want to have a solid partnership. Yeah, the other thing too is I always I always get worried when people are like, oh, we're going to partner with someone. Someone does the work and then I bring the money. That's all it is. I, you always speak to someone that's bringing the money because they're the one, obviously, that has a risk. And like, they don't have any skin in the game. So if they don't show up, then it's like, you know, I was like, so what are you going to do? So can you sell the property? You need their signature. I'm like, maybe it's something where you just lend them money on the mortgage and you do it that way, you know, where you can like say, Hey, it's not getting done, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? And uh, I'm selling the property or whatever, but um, it's crazy. It's crazy how people have these set up. And then you have people that just don't show up because I have contractors that are supposed to be paid and they would never show up. And you're like, well, if this person isn't getting paid, they're just getting paid on the back end, you know, 90 days on the road. I'm really going to have an issue with this person showing up if they don't show up at this, you know, right now to do the work. So, um, so many red flags. So that's, it's great. Thank you for your input. So I think so just, just yeah. real quick on that point, Charles, I, I think understanding it, the, the risk exposure is really key. That that's something that I, I do think is really important is making sure that there is some sort of risk or exposure that is mutually shared, whether that is mm -hmm. reputation, whether that is yeah. money, financial, but they need to have some sort of skin in the game yeah. because on the deal I just mentioned to you, the problem was there was reputational risk, but he had no, no money in the game. The property was fully in my name. Um, the, the mm -hmm. way the deal was structured, he only really made money when we sold. So guess what? When we ran into issues and it was yeah. clear that we weren't going to make much of a profit, he had no incentive to mm -hmm. even finish the project. You know, yeah. I still need to get my money back and not take a bigger loss. He was like, ah, oh, never mind, I'm out. So you definitely want to make sure that you are structuring these partnerships in a way where there's mutual risk on both sides. And, um, you know, again, money is, is, is a big piece of it. And at a minimum, it's one where everyone is going to be incentivized to do what's best for the project at all times. Yeah, it's very difficult to structure. I haven't really seen a great structure for that before. And it seemed like, well, maybe you hire them almost as like, like a contractor per se. Uh, and then you're like, okay, then I'm going to give you something on the back end, but you're giving me a discount upfront on it. I don't know. I mean, it's just a very difficult thing because you're dealing with people that usually aren't, um, 
money and business people. And obviously they don't have the money or they would be doing it themselves. And um, that's, you know, that's something too, that you have to look into. But um, so John, with what you're doing now, you, you seem to be a very analytical person. Uh, you have a lot of experience. So what is your superpower? And like, how important is this knowing your superpower when I'm forming partnerships? Well, I, I think the biggest thing on, you know, figuring out what you're good at is don't overthink it. You know, I mean, there, there's things that you enjoy and things you probably don't enjoy. There are things that you're naturally good at and things that maybe you're not as naturally good at. Um, so I don't try to overemphasize it because, I, you know, I, I think people can bog themselves down saying, oh, I'm, I'm not actually that great at anything. Right. But you are probably pretty good at something. Right. Whether you have an accounting background, maybe you've got a, a background in project management, maybe you have a background in marketing like me. So there's something that you've done well. You've either been compensated or you liked enough to make a career out of it. Um, or there are things that people tell you, hey, you, you're really good at this. So you got to take some of that feedback in and figure it out and do some self-assessment. There's a lot of different you know, uh, assessment tools out there if you want to go that far, disk assessment or personality assessment. But for me, what I would say is I'm, I'm, I've built a career on the account management side and managing teams and managing people. So that's something that um, I have a lot of experience in. Um, I know marketing extremely well, spent 15 years in corporate America doing marketing for brands. So I understand the value of marketing strategies, putting together an integrated strategy, recognizing that things need to work together. So for me and the business that we have with syndication, you know, just to, to break it down, I think many of your listeners are familiar, but we partner with other investors to pool resources together to go out and buy large apartment buildings. So for me, uh, with the skill set that I have on managing teams and, and managing people, as well as marketing and advertising, um, I work with people on uh, one who work to find deals. So on the acquisition side, I, I work with folks to identify opportunities, talking to brokers, building those relationships, putting teams together for these deals. What are the different roles we need? We need attorneys, we need brokers, we need lenders, we need investors, we need key principals. So putting those people together and then raising capital, you know, working with investors in our network and expanding our network, getting in front of new audiences so that we can tell people what we do and how we help them. So if they feel like it's a fit for them, they can come on and learn more about us. So those are the things that I focus on in the business. Um, and you have other folks who maybe are more technical, maybe have a construction background or worked in property management. And those individuals may focus more on actual day-to-day -day operations, making sure that they understand what's in the lease contracts, you know, how do we manage expiring leases? Um, you know, what renovations need to be done? How do we keep this on timeline? How do we keep this on budget? And ultimately the financial side of it to say, okay, if we want to hit a certain return metric, um, what do we need to do to structure this deal, to structure the financing in a way that best suits us so that we can be successful? So you try to you know, figure out what you're really good at. And then if you can supplement the other tasks or the other roles with other people, um, that makes it a little bit easier to, to create a business that can uh, be successful. Oh, that's great. Great information. So I want to talk a little bit about, you were talking about passive investors and that's something that you work with and you raise money with them, you partner with them and you host a podcast. So how have you really, let's say, developed and cultivated your audience and your, your really your investor avatar? Because if we're raising money, if there's people on here that want to raise money, whether it's um, doing one-off deals, like we were talking about before, like flipping or whatever it might be, or uh, going in and you know buying properties with, within joint ventures or in uh, syndications, 
So how are you finding the right people to target your message of when you're speaking to it, uh, speaking to people and who you're looking for that your message is really going to resonate with? It's a great question. Um, for me, it goes back to the marketing background. So with any product or service I've ever, I've ever worked on for a campaign, it always starts with the customer. You know, who are we talking to? What are the challenges they face? And how can we help them with this product or service, mm -hmm. right? Um, so in that case, if you don't understand why someone would want to invest in real estate or, or why someone would want to invest with you, yeah, it's going to be hard because you're just going to mm -hmm. talk to random people. You're going to call your mom or your cousin or your friend from softball or, you know, a buddy that you were in the military with. And you might share, hey, man, I'm, I'm investing in real estate. Would you want to invest with me or do you have some interest in this? And you have no idea what the answer is going to be. Right. Um, because you're not really setting it up to address the issues and challenges they have. I think about it this way. If I were opening up a bakery, I wouldn't call everybody I know and say, hey, I need you to buy a sheet cake for me. Right. Or do you know anybody who wants to buy a sheet cake? Like I'm going to tell you, hey, I'm launching a bakery. Here are the people that we serve. Here are the people who, you know, typically are looking to buy cakes from us. Uh, if you know anybody who's having a wedding, a graduation, a birthday party, or another gathering or celebration, I'd love an introduction to see if maybe we could cater with our cakes, right? But I've given you clear direction of who we help. And I can call my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister, my uncles, my cousins, my friends, and I can tell them specifically who we help. And I can ask them for help identifying who those individuals may be. Notice that I'm not asking my brother to buy a cake for me. Yeah. Ask him, tell him, my brother, hey, do you know anybody who's getting married or is having a graduation party or having a big birthday? If so, would you mind doing an introduction? I'd love to see if maybe I could present some options to them. That's the way that we approach it is really understanding how to take your existing network, let them know what you do, how you help people and expand, but then asking them, hey, would you mind introducing me to one or two people who may be in your network that are looking for these kind of things? So when you talk about building out your avatar, you have to take the time to get clear on that and also understand that if you have zero experience going after a, a you know a high net worth multi you know multi millionaire investor is that you don't know at all is probably not going to work for you why would no. that person want to invest with you again if i got a product or service i might have an ideal customer in mind but if my product or service isn't ideal for that person why would they call me Right. If, let's say I'm launching new shoes. Right. I got a new shoe line. Great. You know, the best person I can get is LeBron James. Right. Great. <laughs> Why would LeBron want to wear my brand new shoes that, you know, have no track record? No one's ever seen. You know, no one's tested about. Uh, he's probably not going to do that. Right. I'm not going to go to NBA athletes and say, hey, where are my new shoes? Right. If I don't have an end. Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out where are you uniquely positioned to help people. And that's why friends and family is a great place to start because they at least know you. I know you. I know John. I've seen what John has done in the corporate world. I know he's highly respected. I've seen John on multiple podcasts. You know what? Let me start with John. That makes sense, right? And then over time, you can expand as you build up your credibility and your confidence in the space. But you want to start where you kind of have that. And going back to the cake thing. If, you know, if I opened up a bakery, but no one's actually ever tried my food and no one knows whether or not I'm, I'm, a, I'm a great um, baker, I, I can't just try to cater the biggest weddings in the city, right? I can't go yeah. to 
biggest venues and say, hey, here I go. I've got to build up that momentum, right? So it's a similar kind of concept when you're figuring out who your customer is or who your, your avatar is and who are you uniquely positioned to serve. Yeah. And also with those larger investors, like those larger people that you'd be in your uh, so-called uh, cake business dealing with, uh, they're going to have different requirements than one of your family member or friends. And they're going to have a, if someone came to me with a deal, I have a whole list, whether they want me passively or actively, I have a checklist I'd work through and it would probably, uh, no one would probably call me back. That was a new person. You know what I mean? But a, a seasoned person would say yes. And they'd send you back and they'd answer, you know what I mean? It's a whole different approach and it's a whole different thing than you'd get from when you're on that relationship versus when you're strictly in a business, just a business relationship, not only a personal one as well. So, um, so John, let's talk about some common mistakes you see real estate investors make since you're a coach. You talked to a lot of people, you had a podcast for four plus years uh, and you've been investing for 10 plus years. Yeah, man, listen, um, the market right now is very competitive. And one of the biggest mistakes that I see people make is relying solely on spreadsheets. You know, mm -hmm. you, you get your spreadsheet, you get your data, you get the rent roll, you take the T12, you put those numbers into some spreadsheet and either the deal pencils out or it doesn't pencil out. Well, 98% of the time, the deals are not going to pencil out when you take those numbers and figure out what a, a broker or an agent's asking for, for this property. So the biggest thing that you can do, and I tell all of my, my clients this and anyone else will listen is you have to understand your business plan. The business plan is going to be key. How can you stand out and be unique? How do you create value? Especially if you can create value that maybe others are missing. That's going to be a great way for you to grow and scale is you've got to look at those numbers, but then you've got to torture test them a little bit. Why this number? You know, what if we change this number? But it's not just changing numbers. It's what if we change the business plan so we could achieve this number? You know, how can you actually improve rents? Can you improve rents without doing renovations? What if you do a higher end renovation? Can you take the rents up even higher than what you're projecting? You've got to really understand the business plan and look at a couple of different scenarios and what the underwriting looks like reflecting those different business plan options before you can say yay or nay on a deal. You know, but if you only go in and take the T12 numbers, slap them into a spreadsheet and expect to get a certain return metric, and that's the way you're making decisions, you're not going to get very many deals. So what are some of the main factors that have uh, contributed to your success throughout your journey? One is just continue to surround myself with great people. I think education is key. Networking is key. You talked about the podcast. I mean, I'm fortunate to talk to many other successful investors every week. Um, I host the Chicago Multifamily Club. So I'll, even though I moved to Cincinnati, I've, I've been hosting this meetup for about four or five years now. And I get to surround myself with other investors in the markets that I'm familiar with doing it. Um, I attend conferences. I have a, a mentor myself. And I tell everyone, listen, if you're looking to get a mentor, your mentor should have a mentor, right? Mm -hmm. Because that shows they believe in mentorship. If someone is you know, looking to do mentorship, but they don't have a mentor, are they trying to stay stagnant in where they're at? Or are they simply looking to you know, find a way to, to add some revenue streams to their bottom line. And there's nothing wrong with making money on that. I'm just saying you want to make sure that this is someone who's also looking to scale and grow what they're doing, and they're going to move up to a higher plateau when they can hopefully pull you up along that way. And I've been very fortunate to, to have a mentor 
when I met him, he had a $7 million portfolio. Today, he has almost a $2 billion portfolio. And this is all in the last five years. So you want to surround yourself with people that are operating at a high level. Because I mean, simply by being around these people, and it sounds crazy, but when you surround yourself with people operating like that, it forces you to one, acknowledge that it's real and it's possible. And two, it's going to make you look inside to say, okay, if that person is doing that, yeah, how can I do that? Even if you're not as motivated to do it yourself, it's going to force you to know that it's at least possible. I saw this guy do it. I just watched him and he's telling me how he's doing, he's doing it. So it's not a mystery. It's not just a book or some random guy on a podcast that you never met. You don't know. You're having conversations. You're asking, how are you changing your business? And they're giving you advice and, and feedback on what you need to do in your business to grow. And I guess that's probably the biggest thing. It's a business. It's not a hobby. I'm not just hoping to get a deal every, you know, uh, once or twice a year. Um, I'm full time. I'm a full time investor. There's no turning back. This is what we're doing. You know, this is where we're at. And because it's a business, we have to treat it like a business. We have to operate as a business. We need systems, processes, operations, human resources, marketing, sales. That's a very important aspect of this. If you really want to grow and scale, you have to be committed to that process. And I think it's it's really important for us and our investors that we dedicate that level of commitment uh, because that's the only way you can grow. The other thing too is uh, what you said about the process and also trusting the process too. So if your mentor has done this, I mean, real estate, just like other investing strategies, it's a, it's a long-term process and real estate's made when, you know, you put money in and you make a little bit of money in the cash on cash, but really it's really on when you're refining, you have an equity event or you're refinancing it or you're selling it, whatever it might be. And at that point, then you like really realize, wow, this is a really good investment I made for three, four five, six years ago, whatever it was. And it just took time to mature the market for us to season it, to do it. And it's just, that's another thing too. And if you were following someone that's done that and was successful in that, you have to trust that as well. Um, it's not, it's a get, it's a get rich over time. It's not a get rich quick if done correctly. So, but, um, so John, how can our listeners learn more about you and your business? Yeah, listen, if you want to learn a little bit more about uh, investing, whether you want to be on the active side or the passive side, we've put together a sample deal package. And mm -hmm. I think it's really helpful for investors to start wrapping their head around both terminology, deal structures, um, you know, um, equity splits and prefer returns and all that kind of stuff. So if you want to dig deep and start to really familiarize yourself with that, whether you're active or passive, and what kind of information you should be looking for in a potential deal, check out our sample deal package. You can go to kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. And that will also put you on our email list. So you get our, our newsletters. And if you want to learn more, talk to me from there, you can feel free to reach out. And we always send out kind of a link to our, our calendar. So if you want to hop on a call with us, uh, you can sign up from there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, John. Looking forward to connecting with you here in the near future and have a great rest of your week. Charles, thank you again for coming or for having me on, I should <laughs> say. See, and I uh, appreciate it. Thank you for the chance. Talk to you soon. Hi, guys. It's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduledCharles.com. That's ScheduledCharles.com. Thank you. 
thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Syndication Superstars, LLC, exclusively.